Penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas having it to see and listen to to remember and accept i vow to taste the truth of the tathagata's words <clears throat> good evening everybody come to the right place to get a respite from all the political drama going on. <laughs> so hopefully <clears throat> what, uh, what uh, I'll be going over uh, in terms of Dogen's teachings will find very relevant to, to uh, what we're going through. I will try to, to draw some connections as we go along, both with that and actually <clears throat> kind of also routing these teachings through some more contemporary uh, non-Buddhist analysis of, uh, of morality, of virtuous action, something I've been kind of taking on as a, as a study project myself. So, so let's just dive in and see where this thing goes. I have no idea. I have some idea. I shouldn't, shouldn't say no idea, but, but I'm not attached to it. So we'll just see where it goes. Uh, so where I wanted to begin, is uh, with a statement that ancient Buddhas can mean a person who is awakened to timeless reality. In short, a person who has the true Dharma eye. And this comes out of last week when uh, when we were talking about a couple of different ways of interpreting the opening lines of Mountains and Water Sutra, and where reference is made to ancient Buddhas, old Buddhas. And the, the take on that that I just uh, read a, a quick summary of is is referring to any of us, even though not all of us feel ancient. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But, uh, but be that as it may, this sense of awakening to timeless reality and that connects to what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks in terms of Dogen's teachings on Uji, on, on time being. So timeless reality, another way of phrasing that would be 
ultimate reality, eternal reality, the absolute. To see things from that perspective is to see them with the true Dharma eye as they are. And as they are in the ultimate realm is actually experienced by us in the phenomenal world of this and that, of elections, of protests, of litigation, recounts, all of that. That's where timeless reality manifests for us. So this teaching actually can help to center us through challenging times to be able to, with true Dharma eye, see the ultimate reality within all of it. This is where the teachings about not picking and choosing, not a non-attachment. Rather, and we'll be coming back periodically to this, our, our main guide to practice being the Bodhisattva vows which is what gives us our compass on how to respond to these things. We, we put our trust in those vows that beings are numberless. I vow to save or free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Delusions arise when our sense of a separate self comes up. That's when we're seeing, when we're not seeing things with the true Dharma eye. So just those two vows alone about our relationship with other beings, which is really getting right to the heart of precepts of virtuous activity. And seeing our delusions as delusions. And as we've said before, it's the, uh, as, as Dogen puts it in Genjo Koan, it's about being enlightened about our delusions. Our delusions are only a problem for us when we don't see them with the true Dharma eye. Then we're completely caught up in them. And we get pulled in to the whirlpool of so many beings, because we all 
live in delusion. This is part of our birthright as well. We live with the true Dharma eye and we live in delusion. This is the coming together, you might say, of the particular and the absolute. When the particular comes up, we have a long history of of finding our delusions there and acting out of those. It's kind of hardwired into us. It's our way of responding to things. So this notion of ancient Buddhas awakening to timeless reality, awakening to see our delusions as delusion from the standpoint of timeless reality. But that first bodhisattva vow, the vow of deep caring, is what keeps us engaged in a deeply caring way. So to see things with the true Dharma eye can be mistakenly seen as a disengagement. But that would be a violation of the bodhisattva vows. We care for all beings, no matter how small, seemingly insignificant, and see them all as being part of this timeless reality. Ultimately, very precious. So that is our guide through challenging times. It's not about being attached to any given outcome. Trusting the practice is to engage it on that basis. Whatever a particular outcome might be, no matter who holds a given office in the political realm, our practice doesn't change. We're we're caring if, if we take those vows seriously and practice them wholeheartedly, then we're caring for everybody, everything we encounter, every activity we're engaged in. Now, how that caring manifests will shift with circumstances 
what we looked at in our study of ecodharma is, is a good example. And nobody knows what kind of shifting is, is likely to occur over the coming years, decades, lifetimes, as far as that critical issue is concerned. But to live our vows is the one constant that we can come back to throughout that challenge and every other challenge we encounter. And in this vein, I, I, here's where I wanted to introduce some more contemporary uh, ethical thinking, uh, a book that I just recently finished, in fact, uh, in my Fukan Kaigi project, is a book entitled Moral Tribes by Joshua Green, who's who wears a few hats, but the main one is uh, of a neuroscientist. And the moral tribes depicted with the title is our, our way of dividing reality into us and them. A more basic primal ethical uh, dualism uh, that used to be the dominant one was me, us. Because there was a time when us, whoever us was, was pretty much our universe. We hadn't really become global yet. Communities were, were basically it. So there was that, that selfish nature, egocentric, fitting within us, the community you were part of. Well, now, it's not that we've put that completely behind us, but it's not the issue it once used to be. Now, however, us and them is clearly an issue of significant magnitude. And them, this is where the Dharma, uh, the true Dharma I, applied to this notion uh, can really help to, to ground us because them is ultimately boundless. It's actually including us too. We get swallowed up in them. From the, from the ultimate perspective, when we see it through the true Dharma eye. Because we think of them as this defined group, members of a particular political party, 
citizens of a certain country, practitioners of a certain religion, so on and so forth. All our ways of making those divisions between us and them. But ultimately, when we look out in the vast realm, we see it's it's all all them and all us, that those two just through interdependence, we start to have that insight. So for for Buddhism, for Zen practice, this is where our tribal instincts can we can see the delusion behind them and not get caught caught up by them you know, sports is is a place where where we get to practice that in usually uh, uh, a non-harmful way, but it, even that can become uh, pretty dangerous at times. You know, rooting, rooting for your home team, us and them, it's real, real clear. Whether it's at the college level, high school level, professional level, the sense of us and them. But ultimately, many, I won't say most, but many can can step back a half step or so from, from the tribal aspects of, of that and just appreciate the game and the talents that get displayed in the playing of it. So we can actually have that way of pulling back a step or so and seeing things from a broader perspective and appreciating things. We've gone through periods of our history where, where political divisions were even more intense than they are now. Nobody in uh, Congress has been clubbed by a fellow congressman the way Charles Sumner was back in pre-Civil War times. His attacker suffered no consequences. We've gone through some pretty gripping times. It came through it confronting 
the great moral challenge of that time that impacted more people more deeply than what's happening now. So when we enter this timeless realm, it helps put things in perspective. And again, it doesn't mean we we just back off, back away and say, well, you know, I, I don't need to get engaged. Of course, we, we should get engaged. We need to follow our bodhisattva vows. That's what makes this practice real. By engaging the particular realities of our lives, which are different from what they were in the 1850s. when things really came to a head. So to bring this back to Dogen's teachings on mountains and waters, it's important to recognize mountains and waters of the present. Those that, that we practice with here and now, they are actual phenomenal things that move and change. You might say they're alive. And our lives connect with theirs, and we practice. And as Shahaku points out to us, these two poles of the things that are right here and now, the particulars of our lives, and timeless eternal truth, the ultimate, are really just one and the same. Harkens back to the Heart Sutra's teaching, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. That's true of everything. So timeless eternal truth we only find in these particulars of our lives. How do we practice with them? If our practice is one of vow, then we have our compass. We, we have some guidance for how to practice with them. If we don't, then we will just react according to our conditioning. And a lot of that conditioning is pretty deep rooted. We've either been born with it, hardwired, or it's been deeply culturally indoctrinated within us. 
So ancient Buddhas are always guided by compassion, by loving kindness, by non-attachment. by openness, beginner's mind. And in the next section of the text, we're introduced to one of the most important concepts, I'll call it, that Dogen used in his teachings. The concept of the Dharma position, or Shahaku puts it, each and every being, like me and you, dwells in its own Dharma position. Now in Genjo Koan, this notion was at the heart of the passage there dealing with firewood and ash. See, we have this notion of, of firewood becoming ash once it's, it fills its, its purpose as firewood. Then it, it uh, moves from the state of firewood to the state of ash. And as Dogen ultimately gets around to pointing out, you know, it's, it's not that that's a false way of viewing things, but it's not the, the true Dharma eyes way of viewing it. This, with the notion of Dharma position, we see this moment this experience arising through its interdependence with all other beings throughout space, throughout time. In that sense, it's not, if it's firewood, it's not about the ash that it will ultimately become. It's full and complete at this very moment. And the same is true of the ash. It's not that the ash is the end product of that firewood, that through its burning in the, in the wood burning stove generated heat. The ash is in its Dharma position as ash at this very moment. And then Dogen goes on to draw the parallel with life and death. We see life as being a process that leads to death. Whereas Dogen is teaching life is life. It's the Dharma position of life. And the same is true of death. Each of those states 
is a position in time, a Dharma position. The Dharma pointing to its interdependence. Life is the result of our interdependence, as is death. So that's kind of a backdrop to our, our political scenario these days. It really does come down to a matter of life and death. You know, when I was young and there was a war going on in Southeast Asia, life and death was very much uh, a generator of great political unrest at that time. Now, we're in a similar situation, except it's a disease now. And how do we act in the midst of that challenge? How do we live our bodhisattva vows in that Dharma position, our position? in a time of a pandemic disease. So coming back to this notion of Dharma position, Connected to this teaching of Dogen's is a corrective teaching regarding our, our uh, seeing change, the change, the impermanence that's uh, one of the core teachings of Buddhism in terms of the nature, the true nature of reality. We see change as being something continuous that changes form, like the firewood becoming ash, like life becoming death. Something continuous. But of course, Buddhist teachings of emptiness are teaching us that there is no such thing. The impermanence goes all the way down. So there's no substratum that's going through the change. It's just all change. Within this notion of Dharma positions, so the change is in all things, which are the driver to the change that we are constantly experiencing. The change of all things. And it's change that if we look deeply at it, we can come to 
see the, the dis-ease that it can cause us. Even after we've studied Buddhism and we think we're getting, getting the knack for, for living with change, it ain't, it ain't that easy. It really does trouble us at times. And we fall back to our position of grasping onto things. And that's when we need to remember, oh yeah, I'm an ancient Buddha. I can let go. I have that within my myself. I'm capable of that practice. So this understanding of the true nature of change is really important to see how we tend to view it as this entity that does experience the change. It's a whole different perception of it when we take that entity out of the mix and there's just change. Mountains and rivers are like that as are all things. And before I close, close up my, my section of this, uh, this evening, to come back to this notion of past and future, as in life and death, firewood and ash, Dogen is saying that each stage is absolutely independent, abiding in its own Dharma position. So the firewood or the ash, life or death, completely independent as their own Dharma positions. And yet, within Firewood, Dogen says, there is a past and future. A past which is a tree and a future which is ash. This past and future are part of the present Dharma position. So in this sense, he says, there is a before and after but they're, they're cut off, so to speak, because of this, this realization of the Dharma position. And the fact that the Dharma position is also a way of seeing the core truth in Buddhism that all reality, 
all space, all time is, is at this very moment. It's not something separate. It's what's right here now. It's why the intersection of the ultimate and the relative is so vital to Zen teaching. And it's why this moment, when we see it in this way, we also then see that each moment is complete with nothing lacking. Because of its Dharma position, everything goes into making it, making it up. My being at this moment, your being at this moment. There's nothing that doesn't that isn't part of that. And this is a direct uh, transference from, from his uh, other Shobogenzo fascicle written within weeks of this one, Uji, time being. It's at the heart of that text of Dogen's that each moment and each being is complete. The eternal moment, the eternal now. Moment after moment after moment. Forming one complete time being. So when we're caring for following our bodhisattva vows, it's in that, with that understanding that, you know, we're caring for everything through caring for this. We can't care for everything if we don't care for this, whatever it is that we're doing right now. Our practice is to take very good care of it. Work with it wholeheartedly, full attention. So everything we do is practice. Practice is not some elevated special activity. It's a, it's a matter of everyday living. It has to be. Or else, you know, practice is just an idea in our head. If it's real, if it's alive for us, then it's in our interaction right here and now. Because that's where our life is. That's where our practice manifests. It's not in our thoughts about, about what it is. It's in how we engage right now. And finally, you know, so this, this notion of flowing brings us back to mountains and waters, as well as all things. We're all flowing. But when we see it in this way, 
Another thing we come to, to realize is the flowing isn't signifying that, uh, that it's trying to become complete. Normally we think of, of things uh, that follow a, a certain course to kind of become complete. The flowing of water, the flowing of our lives, but rather to see the completeness right there in the flowing. It's not outside of this, the flowing at this very moment. Just to reinforce that this is a very different way of seeing things. If we want to use the language uh, of the sacred, it's seeing the sacred nature of this moment, not what's being worked towards a future time. A more elevated state we're working towards the heavenly realm we strive to, to realize. But rather, it's about, it's right here, perfect and complete at this very moment, in the midst of its constant change. So then we come back to the Bodhisattva vows and how perfectly they match with that nature aspect true nature of reality if that's the case then we should care for all things and when we don't see things that way we see them as as separate we should see the diluted nature of that perception Of course, boundless or, or Dharma gates are boundless is just pointing out to us that whatever you're facing at this moment is it. That's your Dharma gate. To enter it is simply to engage, practice. Practice is nothing other than caring for it. Because you understand the Dharma position at that moment, which includes you and that object, that person, that thing, that activity. That is uh, a noble, to use the Theravadan term, a noble way of leading one's life.
and one of one of the uh, dharma gates available to us are the mountains and waters so i think i'll end my comments here and uh bite yours Dean, I wanted to say thanks for the, the talk. It's very grounding this week in particular. Um, and just some of the things that are kind of reflecting for me. I mean, I think one, just the appreciation for, um, you know, the mountains and the waters and just this, you know, kind of, as you were saying, just this groundingness or these kind of truths or even just thinking sometimes just a bigger perspective than the present moment that we're currently in. And I think one of the references at one point was to the magnanimous mind. Yes. You know, just the ability to kind of think on that and the idea of an ocean accepting all kind of rivers coming in, even polluted ones. You know, I've found myself this week with, you know, family or friends, you know, trying to just remind myself and others, you know, just kind of, you know, the, the idea of like an us versus them and, you know, trying to keep, you know, in the midst of all this, those people in our hearts as well. Yeah. As opposed to just kind of, you know, how could that many people vote, you know, in a particular way and right. you know, what's wrong. And, you know, so that's, that's something that just kind of, um, you know, has really helped this, the kind of the magnanimous mind and then um you know one of the other things was just kind of you know as you were speaking tonight you know just you know that this moment doesn't necessarily seem complete like how can this moment <laughs> complete because we're waiting for results but I, I guess one of the things that maybe you can kind of share about is you know kind of you know is the sometimes i think you know the problems out there but you know, maybe it's the attachment to it that, and maybe the problem is more something in, internal where, you know, if I could release the attachment, which is very hard, you know, to just kind of let it go, let the outcome go. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you have anything additional to share on, on that. I just thought that was really helpful. To... Yeah, no, I mean, it's just, uh, uh, things are, are playing out and to kind of see all these different parties that are, are uh, doing what, uh, what, uh, what they think is, is the right thing to do. Uh, you know, count the me uh, methodical counting of ballots to, to not uh, feel pressured that, oh, I've got to 
rush through and get it. Uh, far better. Take your time. Take your time. Just uh, uh, yeah. do do uh, do your job wholeheartedly and uh, and really thoroughly. Uh, so we can look relate to that and say, yeah, you know, if it takes however long it takes, you know, the time constraint is is definitely something we're putting on this. So. To, to, to use the analogy of the fire, there's, there's the firewood, there's the fire, and then there's the ash. We're all waiting for the ash, but we're not appreciating the fire. There you go. <laughs> me included. Me, me included. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's why people are gathered around their stoves uh, watching the flames. <laughs> yeah, it's really, uh, you know, patience is one of the paramitas for us. So uh, it's, it's uh, one of our practice vehicles to, to learn to, to practice patience and and uh, obviously be open to whatever the ultimate outcome might be. We can have, we can have a sense of, of what we think would be uh, a good, the right outcome, but, uh, but uh, as soon as we see that come up to just kind of lo loosen our grip on that and recognize that, well, whatever the outcome is, it really is true that our practice continues. Actually, a friend of mine uh, forwarded me last week a link to, to these 30-minute segments by some uh, younger guy, really edgy guy, but I, I'm in pretty, pretty much in agreement with him on uh, the political side. And, he was talking about, uh, I think the title of this series is something like Culture in Decline. And it's talking about, uh, kind of harkens back to our eco-dharma study about that capitalism really is, uh, gets to the root of a lot of our issues. This uh, consumerist society, the way we are driven to have more and more and more. So he goes through and he's got snippets from all the presidents in recent years, uh, regardless of the party. You know, he bounced from George W. To, to Obama to Trump. And it's that motif is always there. So we that's a kind of I went through those and they were kind of helpful to me as well to recognize that actually the problem is is deeper than, you know, it's not about Trump or Biden. I mean, there are things about Trump that obviously are offensive, but but I mean. Think, you know, Biden's. Wall Street's pretty comfortable with Biden being in office. And the markets are, are having a jolly good time this week because it looks like he's going to take office. So it's a good reminder. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> as attached as I am, too, uh, to, to seeing him 
uh, occupy that position. But to come back to realizing that, yeah, but it's still going to be the same old order of business in so many respects. So we just, and this is where taking that broader perspective is helpful. You know, we want, so want for the, the savior to, to come and, and make it all right. But uh, ain't gonna happen, ain't gonna happen. If, if Biden comes through this victorious and uh, is sworn in on January 20th, uh, you know, it's not gonna be any great transformation in this country. I don't expect it. You know, some media outlets will probably, one of the negative impacts of, of Trump's departure from the scene will be uh, media revenues are going to drop dr dramatically. So, I mean, there will probably be some media uh, companies that go out of business. They've gotten so uh, so connected to the, the uh, the driving force that Trump became that way. It's hard to imagine uh, the political landscape without it. <laughs> I get up in the morning and boot up my computer and there's nothing outrageous coming up. It's like, well, no clickbait. There's nothing to, <laughs> to check out here. <laughs> so it comes down to saving all beings because, because I mean, the reason, like, say that he does win the election or whatever, but the reason it's not somebody who's really all that progressive is because we have a country who's that's 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 like the best we could that's like the best we could get in with the with the with the with the right. level of education and by education i mean you know not just formal education that the citizens of our country have so there's a lot of education that's got to happen from now and over the next 10, 20, 15 years, or we're in trouble. Yeah. Big. Well, I think we're probably in trouble. This, uh, this uh, series, The Culture and Decline thing I was mentioning, he uh, points quite a bit to the fact our two-party system and how it becomes the filtering device. So that's why whoever wins an election even if it's a year like 08, when Obama was was elected, people thought, well, this is transformational. And it, I mean, it, I, compared to George W. Bush, I guess you could make that case, but it really wasn't. I mean, he was a creature of the Democratic Party and they weren't going to, to let somebody really out there uh, get elected they just they have a way of of funneling out anybody who really has 
different ideas on the left or the right. I mean, libertarian candidates on the right, they're not going to get anywhere. They get brushed out. So, I mean, that really, I think, becomes, and if you're not affiliated with either the Democrats or the Republicans, then you don't really have a platform. Nobody's going to know you. You have no recognition out there. So you're kind of uh, doomed before you even get started. You know, Ralph Nader all those years. You, know, you get characters like that, but they're never considered serious candidates. People that would really challenge the system. Like, like an Elizabeth Warren. Now, if she had been a candidate, <laughs> well, not a candidate, if she had been uh, the nominee, that would have gotten interesting. You know, because I think she, uh, she is not anywhere close to a centrist. I think she's fully capable of, of taking on the powers that be. So just to kind of digress into the nuts and bolts of, this, of our great American system here. But I, I, do, I do think that our two-party system is, is, uh, is a, probably at least as harmful as the, uh, as the Republican form of government with its electoral college, uh, Senate, the uh, Constitution of the Senate, all these non-democratic factors that are kind of baked into our government. So you shake all of that up and yeah, you get Biden and Trump. <laughs> and Biden with, uh, with 4 million or so extra votes, uh, still uh, trying to eke out the win here. It's a crazy system. What, seven out of the last eight presidential elections? Every, every one over that span other than, uh, George, other than W's re-election in 04, they've all been, the popular vote's been won by the uh, Democrat. Gore in 2000, and Hillary 2016, and now Biden. 2020, but not much likelihood that's going to change. We'll just have to practice anyway, all right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
and you know, just keep keep having that within our Dharma positions to to really feel the the power for myself of, of, of the practice and to recognize and to see some evidence, uh, even aside from a formal role as a teacher, but I mean, even outside of that, just more in my everyday life to see the, the impact that has on people. So, and I, that's, that's true, I'm sure, for everybody here tonight. Everybody has that kind of impact. Uh, and just keep doing it. Keep really devoting yourself to that. Because without it, nothing's going to happen. That's for sure. There will be change. <laughs> so we can, we can uh, try to move it in that direction that our, our vows lead us to, uh, to interact within our Dharma position to move things along without attaching to results to actually see that even if this system of government continues to go on like it, like it has been, how much good we can do, and, and I know we do do out there, each of us in our own ways, to make this existence so much richer and better for ourselves and for, for all beings. You know, that, that doesn't depend on any of this political stuff. And that's really, that needs to happen regardless of how what's going on on that end of things, irrespective. Should let everybody go turn on the TV and see how those uh, vote counts are coming. <laughs> I have to check in once before I turn in for the night. <laughs> I vow to myself and to each of you to commit myself daily to the healing of our world and the welfare of all being, to live on earth more lightly and less violently in the food, products, and energy I consume, to draw strength and guidance from the living earth, the ancestors, the future generations, and my brothers and sisters of all species, to support others in our work for the world and to ask for help when I need it, 
to pursue a daily practice that clarifies my mind, strengthens my heart, and supports me in observing these vows. That kind of sums it all up, right? 